0: Thanks for tuning in to Tintamar, a podcast on how and why artists create in an ever changing art world. This is Jacob Todd Broussard, um, and it has been a minute. Uh, Happy New Year's to everyone. I paused a bit from the podcast with the election happening and the holidays and um, some personal things that came up, but uh, I am back with episode seven. And this episode features two great artists, uh, Julia Rooney and Maya Strauss, both of them I met uh, during my time at the Yale School of Art. So a little bit about both of the artists. Um, So during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, painters Julia Rooney and Maya Strauss continue to find ways of staying in touch at a distance by writing letters and sending each other works through the mail. While graduate students at the Yale School of Art, Julia and Maya began their correspondence on the occasion of a dual critique. During this evaluation, each artist presented her work in a shared crit space, but before jumping into the critique, the artists read a selection of letters with which each had slipped under their studio doors for the past month. This experiment has led to further correspondences between the artists, allowing each to carve out a contemplative space for meandering within one's own thoughts. In this conversation, we talk about running, walking, keeping a journal, graduate study, and the importance of touch within painting. Um, Also, if you listen to this episode, (laughs) you'll hear in the background julia 's clock chiming, um, which I just I had to include, I think it adds another dimension to this conversation, especially uh on the topic of duration of letter writing and snail mail so another thing you can find. Julia Rooney's work at www.juliarooneystudio.com, and you can find Maya Strauss at www.mayastrauss.com, as well as on her Instagram, um, where she has a number of small works that you can purchase. Um, her handle is spelt i um, I'll have all of those links in the show notes of this episode. The episode begins with Julia and Maya reading back and forth to each other different correspondence letters that they've shared during the pandemic, um, which I think is really great. Um, So that's to kind of catch you up to speed a little bit with the beginning. Um, And I think that's about it. So without further ado, on to the conversation. Maya. You hear that?
1: Stop.
2: This is a poem written by an artist named Wynn McCarthy, who had a show at the Whitney in 2016. And I took a photograph of this poem, which was on the wall of the exhibition, and the poem is titled and dated Monday, March 7, 2016, New York. It wasn't so much that I was changing or growing into something different, but that I had lost all continuity with yesterday, with the entirety of my past, and was left as just this newborn-like creature that didn't really have any compounded experience to work from and present to the people I met. I had lost the pattern, the rhythm of being myself, like I had lost count, like I had forgotten the words to the song. And don't be mistaken, there was nothing liberating about this, like now I could just invent, create, whatever. That wasn't the case at all. It was entirely embarrassing, like I had forgotten the lines to this role I had been cast in, and my forgetting was jamming the whole scene up, since if I wasn't just going to own up and do my part, the whole thing was going to grind to a halt. And where the hell would that leave us?
1: This that I'm about to read is a a letter I wrote, Julia. So March 28th, 9.34 a.m. Dear Julia, I stretched yesterday, and I realized this morning that all of the sore spots have not been moved in a long time. There are all these hidden parts that I have forgotten about my rib cage, the top of my foot. Losing your sense of taste is a symptom of the virus. This one seems the most scary to me. How do you eat without taste? Uncharted territory. My cat has been quarantined most of his life. Should I keep stretching? Reem Morton talks of it being imperative to put her autobiographical personal flags in a public space, not hanging dirty laundry Hanging sacred laundry. I never sent you the ball of felt I meant to send. It has been eaten by moths a little. It is deep brown, burnt umber. It feels substantial. Best,
2: Maya. This is a photograph of a letter dated March 31st, 2020. Dear Maya, last night I had a dream of 3D printing Clorox wipes. The strange thing is that I have never 3D printed anything, nor do I have an image of what that process even looks like. What then becomes invented in a dreamscape when you have no precedent to work from? I usually, for the past few years, write my dreams down as soon as I wake up. I've taken to drawing instead, so maybe the dreams will become less vivid or I will forget them faster. But even a few days later, I still remember taking a trip to Boston, but a version of the city that felt like Europe. Also a dream of being back in college, dorm life, communal living. I love the idea of photographing letters rather than typing them in Gmail. Do you think the Google ghouls can read the text or decipher this drawing? I bought this pad of paper years ago when I was interested in making Word drawing works. I guess I've been thinking about that for a long time, And now it's something I actually do in the studio. I do think art will persist amidst this all. One of the unlikely survivors. It's so, quote, far from essential on a budget slash government assessment, even in normal times, that when getting down to the essential during times of crisis, it will find a way to survive and change and thrive. Love, Julia. So
1: I guess... Like one just small thing to know about these, like Julia saying that it's a photograph of a letter, um, because this was kind of the beginning of our correspondence in March. Um, we started over email, like talking about, like exchanging letters, and I was staying with my folks, and they were sort of paranoid about the mail at the time. <laughs> so we decided that we would send over email. But then we wanted like handwritten letters um, for a number of reasons. So we started taking pictures of the letters and eventually sent them all.
2: And that idea of the Google ghouls being able to decipher text within the format of email, but perhaps not within the format of a drawing or a piece of actual physical writing and a way to sort of circumscribe the digital net while still participating in it.
0: So if you both could state your names and where you are currently located.
2: I'm Julia Rooney. Currently, as in today, September 21st, I am in New York City in my parents and my uh, apartment in downtown Manhattan where I grew up. In this sense of like longer term, I'm sort of between Connecticut and New York at the moment. So I'm sort of in whatever the word is, relationship. I'm in a dual relationship with two cities right now. Uh,
1: uh, Maya Strauss. Um, And right now I'm in my apartment in Alphabet City um, in Manhattan.
0: First off, I would like to ask both of you, um, how did you independently get into making art? How was that introduced to you if it was... In your childhood or if it was something later realized. I'm interested to hear both of your sort of independent narratives of how you came to painting or just art making in general. It doesn't have to be painting.
1: My parents are involved in the arts, um, you know, and, and Julia and I have that in common. Um, so it, it was present for me at an early age that you just like express yourself through painting and through writing and you know, through putting different things together. My dad is a is a writer, and, and my mom is mostly a painter. So that's always been a part of my life. For a long time, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't really think I had a lot of uh, ability visually. <laughs> I liked doing it. I thought it was a part of my life, but I didn't think that I was very, like, dexterous with my hands. And um, once I got to college, I... I really missed making things, and I ended up taking more classes in that than in writing. I sort of figured out that as far as school went, art school made more sense to me, that I, I liked the writing part, but I didn't really like how things were structured, if that was the career path. So I transferred to art school and then kind of you know, never
2: look back. I grew up also with parents in the arts. My father uh, is an indexer, which means that he writes indexes to books, which is not explicitly in the arts, but he does do a lot of art books. So he reads the book and then he writes the index, um, which is interestingly like Maya, like it's like her father is a writer and my father's kind of in dialogue with writers and editors and publishers. And my mother is an art therapist, so someone who's always believed that making art is a way of processing experience. And I would say that she actually came to that profession well into my upbringing, but I think always raised me with that belief that art is fundamental to living. And I think it's also funny that the first art I ever did was actually ceramics, which is kind of the way I I feel like I've come to know Maya in part, so I was doing a lot of clay at Greenwich House Pottery uh, growing up, and I didn't start painting until middle school, high school maybe, and I went to LaGuardia, which was an arts high school, so it kind of was like a daily thing, and then going to college, I actually didn't want to study art because I felt like I needed to be in a more kind of like verbal space, and um, it took some some time for me to get back to wanting to be visual as opposed to verbal in an academic context. And it's, I don't know, it's been like a kind of a dance of like making work outside of academia and making work within it because I think they're two extremely different ways of processing and putting work up for critique is a really different thing than making it and even dialoguing with peers about it outside of that and I think that's always been a tension and and in part why I didn't want to study art in school because I kind of was wary of it being stifled in that space. To what degree is being in school going to push it into exciting directions and to what degree is it going to like hold you back from exploring something that you're fearful might be judged before it's ready to kind of grow into its full self?
0: and you guys can probably speak better to this than I can um, just because y'all have a year on me, but uh, I'm in that weird limbo of like post grad school fatigue where you feel a little hungover (laughs) about sort of thinking of all of that work that was often made in that environment, which is like, we all asked for it, right? We all went to school to sort of figure out where these things that we make land and to sort of like, you You put up these like weird these weird sort of gestures, and like you're trying to echo locate yourself within like your peers and and um, faculty. but um, how much of the studio became a place of anticipation of the thing that I was making to be evaluated? And now that you're on the other end of that, it's almost like, okay, well, you can make whatever you want, and no one has to see it. But you still sort of have to grapple with like, that inner dialogue of like that anticipation of someone seeing it or someone um, evaluating that thing that's like halfway done or, or that idea that's not even fully fleshed out. But that, I mean, that's so, so much of that unknowing is just like inherent to, to what we do. Like I'm not looking for certainty within my art practice. <laughs> I'm I'm looking to ask more interesting questions. And a lot of that requires like being bewildered and just kind of being in the muck of things and not sharing, right? It's like a form of protection in a weird way so that you can ask the right questions. I mean, it's like, what are the questions?
2: Well, actually, it made me think a lot about when we were doing our letter exchange in grad school. I think a lot of those letters in the context of that place were quandaries about the way work would be received like I think we were exchanging a lot of questions with each other in a very like one-on-one way like that was an audience of one like writing a letter to a person is an audience of one rather than an audience of 50 and I think we could express the question like how is this going to be looked at or I can't help but thinking about how this is going to be looked at and and as a result I feel like the letters became this holding space for that, Anxiety, or I don't know if no, if anxiety is the right word, but for that self-consciousness, but they were very unself-conscious in that way because they were all about expressing self-consciousness. But they were very honest, maybe more honest than the work itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about, you know, to kind of like figure out what we were going to talk about in this conversation or to touch base ahead of time. And I, I was really thinking about that crit that we had after we worked together. Um, because we didn't exactly make a collaboration for the crit but we had a conversation that we sort of scripted and um, made out of our letters that we'd been writing back and forth and then we critted our work independently but because we had been working together since we knew we were going to have a crit which was I don't know like two months or three it was like a month it was a month. Like Okay, December. yeah, not a lot of time. <laughs> um, but to me, that was, that still stands out as the most constructive crit that I ever had. And I think a lot of that is because what you're saying, like, we got the anxiety or whatever you want to call it, like, out of our hits. You know, like, we talked through, like, any of the insecurity that you think about coming up to a crit so that it was you know it was still there but i wasn't focusing on it i wasn't like oh what if this happens cuz i'd already talked to you <laughs> about what that scenario could have been so it it kind of didn't couldn't exist anymore if that makes sense like we'd already created like this sort of safe space around the work to a point where worry couldn't be there
2: i always think about this robert gober piece that it was a model of a piece that he never made, and the model itself is so interesting, and it was good enough as a model. It didn't need to be made almost. And like this idea of like writing a letter about something that actually never gets made like in a way, I don't feel like that holds itself up to the same kind of critique as an object that is made. it's It's like a, on a different terms
0: just for the sake of clarity, too, for listeners, um, the critique format at Yale, um, which is where you both got your MFAs, is a two-person crit. Each person has an hour sharing the same space. And usually it usually is pretty independent. But what you guys had proposed was, where's the middle ground for you both to have your independent work in in the room, but also hold space for each other and how the correspondence of letters back and forth throughout your time as students mediated a lot of those tensions. I think one thing that you guys sort of made or made me consider as a student at Yale was, okay, like what is the role of collaboration with my peers during this time when we're all sort of going through this weird social experiment which is grad school it felt like that a lot of the times how can you sort of lean on other people to to get you through it and to reinforce your ideas and validate i say this from collaborating with a peer of mine it was like it was one of the first times that i felt like seen and heard <laughs> in a weird way. but there was so much dialogue that we shared um, this is my, my collaborator, Emil Mousner. Um, and we shared in the studio, we would just, you know, late night studio conversations back and forth. And it just sort of opened up the possibility of like, well, why don't we just collaborate for our final review together? Why didn't, why, you know, if, if, if these, if we're getting to some sort of mutual interest in what we're doing and like ideas that we share, um, why not let that, take place in a final review. And by that point, I mean, this is, like, the end of our our last semester. We're like, you know what, just let's do it. Who gives a shit? Because <laughs> yeah. so much of, I mean, and I don't want to project this onto you guys, um, onto your own experience, but I felt so much of my relationship in school or, or my relationship to my work was, like, sort of... Sorry, the clock is chiming. <laughs> <I love that. laughs>
2: it's also wrong it's like 22 minutes fast so it's yeah. not really like, 11 like
0: o'clock, i'm like wait it's 10:40 right now <laughs> but uh yeah like how like we could i don't know it's like that that com those those conversations and that collaboration has led not only into working on projects and correspondences outside of the social experiment of grad school. But, um, it's like, it's led into a lifelong friendship, you know, which I think is like, that is something that like, that's, that's an amazing effect that can happen when it's collaboration. Um, like a friendship can come out of that. And so could you guys talk a little bit about friendship in relation to your correspondence? in your collaboration.
1: Yeah, we're not friends. (laughs) (laughs) Just just kidding. (laughs) No, I mean, I I think, I don't know if it's that important to mention, but we were picked randomly. So we weren't, you know, you get picked from the crit randomly as a pairing. And I already was like really sure in my head that I was gonna convince whoever it was (laughs) to collaborate with me. But I'm sure a lot of people would not have, been excited about it and maybe would have turned me down but you know we were we were lucky i th- i think in that way that we were um you know well suited to each other and i think didn't really know that at the time we hadn't actually talked a, a whole lot before this um and then also i think because we're both uh you know writers like like writing as as part of what we do I think in in different respects um we mostly communicated that way I mean we did have conversations but we were like in a real time crunch and let's just start talking like whenever we have a thought um about something we could make together we'll write it down and then we kind of ran out of time to make a thing together and the letters ended up you know being a proposition for a collaboration but I, I think it's important that the friendship came out of you know these letters like that that way of uh you know responding to like a full thought of somebody else and then figuring out what to yeah. say to it
2: and also like two things it was actually strange compared to like the regular crit cycle where you find out a week before you have to go we actually had a month of knowing which in a way is like awful because then that you have a full month and you're like, Oh my God, now I have to like, you know, make something really amazing because I have a full month to make it. But also that we actually could develop it over that time, despite there being this time crunch, it still felt like longer. So we had a sustained back and forth. And also, you know, there's something about getting to know a person through the medium of letter writing, which is a, Slower. I mean, we weren't mailing them, so it wasn't that slow. But it's definitely a form of dialogue where there's a time lapse between the next time you write back. It's not like you talk to the person and then a second later they respond to you, which is, I think, the way most people get to know each other is through this kind of very back and forth. It's dialogue, and a letter is is more of a ramble potentially because there's no point per se. It's not like it's a communication mechanism nowadays that something urgently has to be responded to. It's often like a thought and then another thought. And I would only respond to maybe one thing that Maya wrote in the letter. And that would be then the next thing that the letter took on after that. So it it was in a way more of a meander and a way of getting to know someone sort of through the back door rather than through like the immediacy of how I think most people get to know each other. And I think weirdly because
1: we've met up maybe a few times since school, but you know, there hasn't been that much time (laughs) since school. And then now this pretty much this whole year has been like a quarantine weird time. So most of our correspondence as friends has been through letters. Yeah. At a distance. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it. I haven't really thought about it that way, but I. I think that's definitely true. That a lot of our back and forth has been like sending each other things. I mean, even like sometimes over email, or you know, we've both like sent each other work also, like through the mail, and that's a very. I mean, it's a very like old kind of friendship, you know, <laughs> like uh, an ancient friendship. <laughs> mm-hmm it kind of, it made sense in a strange way. I mean, what you're saying about grad school being this social experiment, um, in the same way as, like, writing letters denying, like, Google being able to read it and, like, sell stuff to you, um, that it it was totally anathema, I think, to, like, the experience of of going to Yale and You know, having this like slow written conversation and kind of like courting each other in this very like, I don't know, I mean, kind of like romantic way felt, you know, so different from every other conversation that I was having. You know, like there wasn't like a particular end goal and it wasn't really about Yale. It was really just about us trying to understand each other and where we were coming from.
2: And I think that thing about it not having a quote-unquote point, like, I think there's so much about grad school that is about defining your voice, articulating your vision, coming to some conclusion by this very artificial time frame. Like, by the time you are ready to have your thesis, you've you've come to something. And the thing about a letter, especially a letter like this, is that there is no quote-unquote point. And in that, there is all the point in the world, like it, 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 because it's it's sort of like a poem. Like a poem is as much as you get from it, but there's no mission statement to a poem. And I think the best paintings are the same way. There's no mission statement, even if they bring you to great awareness by looking at them. I think the best paintings don't force that on you.
0: There's all this weird unspoken cultural pressure of that sort of completion towards the end, and Everyone's pace is so different, but a lot of that, I don't know, I think there's so much unlearning that happens as well along, that you have all, you have all these things that are ingrained in you in school, and then there's a the whole process of undoing all that shit. And I really love that the letter writing correspondence is a way of sort of that unbecoming or sort of questioning a lot of, that, a lot of those systems. The act of writing the letter is so similar to the act of drawing. Could you both speak a little bit independently about your practice in relation to maybe drawing? Or is drawing, I mean, you you both say that you write a lot. Is there a lot of um, independent correspondence that you keep for yourself, whether that's like journaling?
2: I have been keeping a morning journal since 2013, which was the point at which I reached a breaking point in realizing that the first thing I did when I woke up was check my phone. And I had this really visceral reaction to that thing of like, the first thing I do is bring something from the world into my life that I didn't ask for, because your phone is like this feed of things that you didn't really ask for. It's like, what's in your inbox, what's in your, whatever feeds you're on. So I started doing either a drawing or a you know a page of writing before I check my phone. And I've been doing that. It's mostly not interesting stuff. It's like as I said, dreams that I had or whatever the first crap that comes into your head when you wake up. And that's the most consistent thing. I mean, depending on where I am, I, I draw, but I wouldn't say that's actually that integral of a process for me as as other forms of doing are. Um, but the the morning stuff is is pretty consistent.
1: I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you run too. I always think of yeah, that being yeah. like a big part of your, like I walk usually <laughs> before I work. And I, I feel like we always talk about
2: like that kind
1: of exercise as like a, a break into thinking about the work.
2: We actually went for a great walk on the collaborative residency we did last summer. We went through this walk in the woods and we read to each other.
1: Whenever we've talked about kind of what we do together, um, like for, having this conversation or for writing proposals for things I feel like I'm always thinking about the differences between us and I I maybe I highlight this too much when i was talking to Julia but that Julia's like really active I I always think has like a lot of energy and is a runner and I'm like a slow like walker I think we like think on a similar pace but the kind of like aerobic parts of our personalities are very different I thought that was kind of like a An interesting thing, going to an actual residency, which was only a few days, it was like a micro residency, kind of thinking about like our different daily routines, and the amount of energy we have, and like, how much food we need to eat at certain times, and all (laughs) these things, was kind of fascinating, like, you don't really think about that at first when you're collaborating with somebody, but then, you know, the actual like, fuel (laughs) that the other person needs psychically, but also just like, physically. I, I was just thinking that it's really funny that when Julia and I started talking about writing to each other during quarantine, I was like a, a little bit slower to like get into the rhythm of writing every day because I was keeping a journal and and then I just started realizing how, how like depressing the journal was. Because when no one else is going to read something, when there's like no potential for it to be public and you know, something pretty upsetting is going on around the world. Um, And then, you know, a number of things added into that during the time. It was very easy to, like, go into dark thoughts about what's going on and how do I think about this and what am I supposed to do? But then to write to somebody else, that didn't really feel very productive. Like, I'm not going to just send Julia, like, dark, mean thoughts. (laughs) That's terrible. (laughs) It felt much more, like... I want to think about what happened today that might be interesting to her and it might spark something for her or, or not maybe just something I find interesting, but, you know, I end up talking, I was staying upstate with my folks in the Hudson Valley. Um, so there's a lot of mention of like seasons and like birds,
2: <laughs>
1: you know, like, what did I see today that was uh, was interesting to me that Julia is not seeing, you know, probably in, in New York City, so there was a lot of, uh, it felt a lot more generous to me to think about that as a daily practice. And then the drawings, um, we both started kind of having a drawing and a, a letter together um, every day. So the drawings also became this like, I uh, like, what's in the room <laughs> right now that's like worth drawing? Like I've been in the same room for three months, like, and, uh, you know, finding like new things to focus on.
2: I think also, though, in this moment, like a letter has a different degree of expectation to it because if you are in need of talking to someone, you're probably going to text them, call them, maybe write them an email, and there's a certain expectation that they'll respond to you if it's a text within an hour, if it's an email within 24 hours, whatever, or like immediately people want responses. I think that because a letter, there's a time lapse, the likelihood that it will get to you and that person will still be in the same state. Like you write a letter, you're in an immediate way of feeling, you send it three days later, something has probably changed in some capacity. So I think it's it's that there's also like a degree of urgency that is very different and you're almost like responding to the shadow of something versus like the actual presence of it. By the time someone reads your letter, it's like it's not relevant in the same way. It's relevant in a different way because time has passed. Again, it's like this thing about like I was thinking about this during the pandemic, like all the businesses that are essential versus all the businesses that are non-essential. And it's like you think about art and it's like art has never been essential, but in that in that, it's almost like more important it's more valuable in the fact that it's not essential in a in a weird way and like letter writing is sort of the same it's like it's not essential that you respond to it right away but in that it's like it's so valuable to have that correspondence the clock is coming again I when I was um (laughs) (laughs) um, I don't know I mean the thing about painting too is like I think so much of the way that people teach themselves to paint and even teach themselves about what they care about in painting is by looking at paintings. And that's like still the value of going to an artist's show or going to a museum, I think, is that you're imbibing this, this material. And the hard thing about grad school, I think, is that there's like, again, this time pressure where it's like you have to take it in at the same time that you have to put it out. But in the real world, there's a much longer process of diffusion And it can be years after the fact that that work finally gets made. And, you know, I guess to your question, Jacob, you know, i never felt like I was actually making paintings during grad school. Like, I feel like I made very few paintings. Um, I made a lot of work and I was painting, but they weren't paintings. And now 2020, so like, you know, two to four years, depending on where you count backwards from, I feel like I've just started making paintings again, like what I consider to be real paintings. Um, I felt like in grad school, I don't think paintings get better by talking about them. And I did not see a way that I could not talk about what I was making in that environment. So I almost avoided making paintings at all because I didn't think it would be productive to talk about them. And that wasn't like a conscious choice. It wasn't like I was, you know, like preventing myself. I just did not have the instinct to make paintings at the time. And now in this way of like, there's no, there's nobody looking, you know, there's, it's not like I'm making these for a, like for a show or for, you know, a critique or for a person. It's not, it's just, it's in a vacuum in a weird way. Um, I feel like I can, I can make them again.
1: I think what you were saying too about like when you first said that we that our painting practices are you know open like that we let a lot of other ways of working in I think I think it's funny because if, if you said that about most artists I would assume that you mean something digital like video or like VR or, or something mm-hmm. and I think the thing that makes it less of a painting practice for us and more of an overall process is that we both are really interested in touch. I mean, that's part of the letters and that's part of, you know, our interaction. Um, but a lot of it is about, you know, surface, but in the a deep sense of surface, like what, what do you feel around you in the world? What do you, what do you touch? How can you manipulate materials with your hands? Um, so I, I think that's, kind of, like, the uniting way of working with everything that, you know, both of us do respectively and together.
2: And Maya, sometimes I feel like looking at your paintings, I feel like you've, like, massaged the painting out of this, like, there's this painting that you made, and it was just, like, you put oil over, like, something that you shouldn't have put it over, or, like, you put acrylic over something, and it was just, like, it was this layer beneath the final layer that was, like, seeping through and it was like I just felt like you were like coaxing it out you know and I think there's a lot of paintings that look very slick and very like agile and like fluid and there was this way I felt like that you were like getting it out from the very very deep like, <laughs> Extruding and, it. <laughs> yeah yeah and it was it, and it really made the painting what it was, you know, it was like a fought for painting. It wasn't one of these dexterous, like, I'm gonna just like whip this thing out. It was like, you fought for it.
1: I all the time look at other people's paintings and think like, oh, it looks so juicy. I would love to make a juicy painting. And then the moment I get to the studio, I just like add a bunch of like dust and wax. And <laughs> like, I I don't know what it is. But there's something I mean, I know what it is. I, I really like it. A certain kind of touch. I, I think this smoothness to me um, of oil paint, I love and I love looking at it, but whenever I start to make it, it, it like, it feels slippery, I guess, literally, it feels slippery to me in a way that I, uh that doesn't feel like how I see things. You know, that's a lot of what Julie and I have talked about together, I think. And, you know, part of what I, I think was really beneficial to having that conversation when we were in school It's just like really thinking about how you see and that bouncing that off of somebody else, you hear it more. You know, that this is like, oh, this is a thing that I do all the time. I look at this stuff and think about it this way. You know, textures like always just like I'm kind of like a zoom in on everything when I look at things. Like I get really close and want to get into like, yeah, all the micro textures of things.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah,
1: like I keep using my hands. I'm really bad at that. <laughs>
0: I see a lot of painting that's being made now that a lot of it is touch is not really forefronted as much. It's more of the overall read of the painting and how readable is is the image in a way and how how it's made. And and as painters, we can for the most part we can pretty much I shouldn't speak for everyone, but you can sort of, if you're working with material and you're working with paint, you can kind of like figure out how other paintings are made. And, and that's why we go to museums and, and look at paintings so much. Right now we're in a weird moment where a lot of art that's being made is like super slick. It's um, like a lot of like very like sexy painting <laughs> is happening right now. But I think, I mean, there's so many different ways of describing what you were talking about, Maya, is describing looking at something. One artist that comes to mind is Jess, and the way in which he is describing an object or describing an, an image, an overall image, and denaturalizing the image through the way in which he's describing it, and that all has to do with like how the paint is, how it's being, how it's being moved from like the palette. To the canvas, and it's like that act of of transferal from that place to another creates all of that tension. And a lot of those paintings are like, they're incredible paintings, but they're hard. I find them sometimes. I'm like, oh god, they're like nauseating to look at. And there's a there's a tension within that, you know, that I I know I I'm always after in my own painting. But a lot of it is it has a lot to do with touch. And what's funny is like when I mention touch to like people who aren't painters, they're usually like, wait, so like can we like touch the painting?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think one of the things about mail is that it's all about touch and physical movement of one thing to another place, one place to another place. And um, I think part of what excites me about physically sending objects is that they will inevitably change because there will be many, many hands and processes that will impact those surfaces. And that's something that, you know, in a way is like, the opposite from what it is to see a painting in a gallery. And especially now where it's like, everybody is staying so far away from each other. And like, we are in such, and like that has been exacerbated by the, the digital ways that people are interacting. It's like, we are getting so far from touch um, in, in every way, really.
1: I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, Je- I'm surprised we've never talked about Jess before. Cause he's actually one of my favorite artists and, was a friend of my parents um, so we have like some of his things in my house and I have a tattoo of him <laughs> or of one of his pieces um, but it's interesting to think about him because he's you know obviously make it work before digital was at all a thing and then a lot of his images come from magazines and photography and then are made incredibly felt you know like he's imagining this surface to these flat reproduced images it's a sort of another level of mimesis, right of like bringing the thing back out of a reproduction and I think in a funny way you know I understand why so much painting right now is very flat because people are really thinking about how images are made and what we're absorbing and um but I do think that that's like a great thing that Julia and I have in common is that we miss that <laughs> we miss the felt and um and I think we do in our work like a similar. Jesse and kind of a thing of like trying to put the feeling back into things like trying to reinvigorate the touch in everything that we do like a lot of the things that both of us make are sort of like recycled images and objects and that's part of it I think it's like adding the touch back into like like building materials something that's manufactured um, like overdoing the adding mm-hmm. the tactile back in,
0: and
1: mm-hmm. like seeing how sort of far you can push touch like back onto everything.
0: Well, I want to talk about y'all's collaboration for that resonancy. I think like that's a really interesting piece of, of of you guys coming back together outside of school to continue continue that back and forth dialogue.
2: We were working in this church that sort of had been taken over by a few different artists and everyone sort of had a, a space and we ended up choosing this old library. it was
1: well, it was like the, the minister's library.
2: It was like the, the... <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah there was even more specific uh... name but yeah, it was where the minister like kept all his books.
2: And so like there were these built in bookshelves to the wall and it actually happened to also be the room I was sleeping in. So like I was falling asleep amidst this installation that we were like working on day by day. And like the things that we brought with us were basically like pretty cheap art supplies and like things that I, I kind of actually went in with this idea of like, I'm going to take all the stuff that I've collected and never used. And like, if I don't use it in the next three days, I'm getting rid of it. And I actually haven't uh, kept true to that promise because I saved it after we left the stuff that we didn't use. But a lot of it was like actually like some of my mom's like art therapy materials. So like kind of craft based like construction paper, tissue paper, pipe cleaners and like old like blocks and things like that. And uh, one of the things we did also is we went to a an est- we went to some estate sales um, the last day just to kind of collect a few more pre-made objects. Um, and a lot of the thing that we ended up making was about arranging more than it was about producing something entirely new. And we spent a lot of time not talking in the room, but moving things from one shelf to another and sort of thinking about it as an arrangement of objects rather than like a set object.
1: One of the things that we did by like once we were We were there, I think partially because I really like using it, I didn't have a studio I could use it in, was plaster. We just bought, like, a huge thing of plaster. And because we had this idea that we had all these materials that, you know, have, like, certain connotations. If you only use them, they do sort of look like little kids stuff, which is, I think, part of, like, the playfulness of what we were doing anyway. But the plaster was, like, a way to um, have, like, a, a unifying substrate that we could put different stuff in we ba- we basically used it as like a little trough and would sort of independently work on a bit of plaster while it was drying or um, kind of work on them together a lot of them broke and then we would put them in the installation like broken or put a piece in like, when I was little, I I loved dollhouses, but not, like, dollhouses dollhouses. I just liked making them out of whatever, like, finding a cupboard that wasn't being used or moving stuff out of a cupboard and, like, making that some sort of world. And I would call these, like, setups. There's something to that with what we were doing that it was just, like, very, like, contemplative, but at the same time, like, very playful of, like... Oh, but this could like hang from a really long pipe cleaner and then it would kind of like <laughs> dangle there in this weird way, or this could be sort of like stuck on the bottom and like what would that do? And so it was a fun kind of like totally visual conversation of just like moving things around.
2: And it was also really spatial because we photographed it at the end to try to have like you know some documentation, but I think in large part, what the room was about was about discovery. And like, there were a lot of things that were hit. I mean, they weren't hidden, but they were not things that you would see upon first walking in. Because we we had this, this text that we cut up and we embedded excerpts of the text throughout the room. So if you were in the room for three hours, you might, after the three hours, see that there was this little piece of language. So it was very much also about like, spending time in a space as opposed to just seeing it and getting it, which is, I think, what we're talking about, like, this very image-driven way of making work nowadays that, like, you see it, you get it, you move on. And this was not about that. It was like, you might actually not get it at all. And that's, like, almost like a John Cage thing. It's just, like, there's no climax. There's no denouement. It's just, like, it keeps going and going and going.
0: So I have two more questions. Uh, One of them is... I guess this is more of a question for your, for each of your independent practice, or it can be collaborative. It's funny because I just recently I found a like folded up printed um, poem on bewilderment by Fanny Howe that was like in my car. <laughs> I was I just I don't know why it was there. I mean it was something that I printed in grad school and it just like ended up like at the bottom of my console with like weird like stains on it. Um, but I I've just been thinking a lot of the role of bewilderment and how bewilderment is so much of a part of the art making you have to be vulnerable enough to be bewildered and confused and a lot of our job is to maintain a state of bewilderment because that is ultimately what leads to discovery that leads to new ways of considering what we're doing considering what painting can be, um, what it is for us. With that bewilderment, there comes a lot of doubt. I mean, this is, I'm speaking solely for myself. Um, I don't want to project that onto you guys. I'm curious as to what is your own relationship to bewilderment. Is that something that you prioritize in the studio? Is there a certain uh, healthy distance that you keep in relation to doubt, so that you're able to get the work done that you need to see done. (laughs) I
1: mean, I think as far as collaboratively, I, I think that's a lot of what I like about when we've worked together, or when we talk about possible projects, is that, well, I mean, for one thing, that we haven't really made that many things together. Like, we were just talking about that, that mostly we talk about possible things that we could do, and what they would be like. And I think a lot of What's in there that's maybe kind of related to doubt in in another sort of ways, like hope or like possibility, you know, that we are constantly having these conversations about like what could possibly happen and like, well, it couldn't happen while we're in grad school. Like, this idea we have, we couldn't really do it here. Or like, who would let us make this thing? Like, maybe nobody. And we just need to make like a mock up. And that's the thing. And, um, I think that the collaboration has been good for for me anyway in that way of, like, kind of destabilizing how I think because automatically if you're talking to somebody else and you're making a work with them, you you kind of have to, like, leave part of you and figure out, like, what the two of you can make together, what's possible. I mean, this, like, daily routine thing, I think if we did a month long residency, we would become much more in balance of like, okay, like Julia's gonna go for a run, I'm gonna go for a walk and she'll like lap me three times and then <laughs> like we'll meet at the end or something. You know, we would get like some kind of uh, balanced system, you know, um, but that that's part of what's good about collaborating, yeah, I think is that you you lose your footing in a really positive way. Like when I'm in the studio, there is a lot of doubt but part of what is, uh, you know, confusing, I think, is that, you know, what are the parameters? Like, mm-hmm. I can make anything, <laughs> you know, I mean, within my means and everything. But, you know, I could do whatever I want. So what needs to be made? Why would I make that thing? You know, that ends up being a lot more what I think about. And generally, I think I make things pretty quickly. And then I kind of, like, put them together. And that becomes more of the questioning is, like, this is a really weird thing. Like, does this go with anything else? Or does this have some kind of relationship to anything outside of the studio? You know, then, again, that's part of, like, our collaboration is kind of this arrangement idea. Like, you sort of get rid of doubt, I think, if you start relating things. You know, if you start kind of, like, filling the space with another thing. Mm-hmm you know, automatically this thing has purpose because it goes with this other thing. Like, this ball will roll away unless we put this, like, rock next to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then those two things have equal purpose because they need each other.
2: I think both of us are not just artists but people who have, like, many types of lives within a single life and, like, many parts of our life that aren't necessarily always talking to each other. Like, I think that during grad school even, like, both of us had partners in new york so like there was this other life that we had that was like simultaneous but not in the same space of what we were doing at grad school and that like again as a person and as an artist i think it's really important to have simultaneous things that have nothing to do with each other or that do have something to do with each other but they aren't designed to be together they just kind of happen to co- like there. there's this cacophony of and and this kind of contradiction of people and of objects and of ways of working. That's helped me, I think, understand the limits of a painting and what a painting is and what a painting doesn't need to be. Because I think sometimes I have all these things that I want a painting to be, and then that becomes the painting becomes unwieldy. And I think in my like earlier years of making paintings, I wanted to put everything, like all these ideas, all these concepts, all these theories that I was excited about into a single painting. And the fact is that a painting doesn't need to hold so much. A painting can be about one thing and a letter can be about another thing and a relationship can be about another thing. And, you know, even like in our relationship, like our relationship could just be a friendship, but it's also another thing that's actually separate from a friendship, but it's also a friendship. It's like, it's kind of an and, and, and rather than it's this or this. And I, I think that's really important to just like have all these different places that you can deposit ideas into and that allows the painting to just be its own thing and to be in a way a modest and humble thing that's excellent at what it does but it doesn't do everything it just does something yeah I like that and and and
0: Yeah. 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 So (laughs) continual, like one sentence. I love that. I,
1: I think that's like a lot of what, what also just like in a material way I think about with us is like, I keep, I just read something about magpies the other day. And this idea of just like more being okay, that I felt like was really good about our collaboration. And part of why I think, um, you know, like, not to keep talking about this, but, like, why I felt like the crit after our collaboration was good was that um, you kind of, like, gave me permission to include everything I wanted to put in and to, like, not edit myself in... uh, I mean, not that I don't think editing yourself can be good, um, but I think both of us have an inclination to go towards the, like, include who you are, include what your life is about, include all the things in the studio, like, not... To um, you know, hold back certain parts of how we're working. I think that's part of what the collaboration has been—is to kind of like, like add, do another and on top of what we do. Like then there's the space between you and somebody else, and fill that space too. Like make another thing out of that relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Permission, right? That's the big, yeah, that's the big word. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So my final question for you guys <laughs> is um what does creative satisfaction look like for you? I want that clock to like gong
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, It actually is about to. <laughs> my
0: Perfect.
2: clock tells me that it's almost noon and it's twenty yeah, it's it's really going to do that in a minute. So just be, be ready.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's tough. I mean, I think that's definitely, like, you were asking a while ago, like, whether we feel like we're out of grad school or, like, out of the, uh, like, miry period between that and everything else. And uh, my husband would say that I still talk about it too much, and I, he's right, but to him, you know, not to <laughs> everybody. But, uh, you know, I I think that there's something to grad school that I, I knew was gonna happen for me and that happened more than I thought it was going to, which was like <laughs> <laughs> You knew it was gonna happen. Time. That's it. <laughs> oh man, what was I, trying... <laughs> I knew Something was gonna happen in grad school. Right. That I was I was gonna have to become like stronger in what I think my work is. Right. That people were going to make me feel really uneasy about my beliefs in my own work. And and I think that is a really good thing. And that was exactly what I felt like I was missing was that I got to a point where it's not like my work was perfect in the studio in any way, um, you know, before going to grad school. But I got to this point with it where I felt like there was no tension, (laughs) like I wasn't visiting with that many people Everybody was working, you know, it was hard to get people to come to the studio. I was working all the time. I just was like making paintings I liked and trying to like push them, but I felt like I was hitting a wall and going to grad school definitely completely destabilized me <laughs> and um you know, I was really like kind of I I always think about it being like being in like a whirlpool, you know, like being in a uh, what's the word for that? Like a current in the ocean, you know, like you can't get out of it. It just keeps like pushing you in circles, but that you need that. I think as artists, um, you know, I think there have been a few people who've made really good work and had like perfect, happy lives, but I don't know if I even really believe that. I'm sure there was something really bad in there that made them good. Um, and I guess to me, like, there, there's a weird thing about creative satisfaction that is kind of like this ebb and flow, too. That you have to have these, like, yeah, destabilizing moments. You have to have these things that make it really hard for you to make your work. And that that's kind of what makes it the most satisfying to make art is to feel like you have to do it. Like, people are telling you, like, nope, like, don't, like, just drown. <laughs> Like, just, just like, or, you know, like, just let go of your body and the current will just push you to shore. And I'm like, no, like, I I know there's something out here, like, like, keep fighting.
2: Exactly.
1: Like, that's what makes you an artist. And I think that's like, what to me is, is really fulfilling is like feeling a, a deep kind of, um, satisfaction in like your, your belief that this is what you have. I mean, like Forrest Best, like we were talking about, I think is one of those people that, is great to look at if you know nothing about him but if you know about him then you feel like that's a that's a real struggle like that's this is what I need to do this is how I express myself this is how I am in the world and if we all had like a little more of that I think you know I don't know if we'd be happier we'd be more interesting (laughs) So I guess like satisfaction is being unsatisfied.
2: Well, it's like wanting to get to the next day in a way. Like I think sometimes of like being in a place that I have no desire to be, but because there's the possibility of art existing anywhere, it can be a little bit more tolerable. You know, it's like if you have like, my sister would always say, if you have a book in your bag, it's almost like a safety, like it's like a safety thing. It's like, at least you have a book. You know, because at least you can read, even if you're somewhere. And uh, I think art is, like, anything has the potential to be used in that vein. And I, I don't know. I think I've always also likened it to running because the thing about going for a run is that it's a completely independent... Like, every run is its own sort of cycle. And then you finish the run and there's always another run and it doesn't really have a relationship to the run before it, but your body over time gets stronger. So your body actually does change, but every run is still kind of its own, on its own terms. And you can have a terrible run and then the next day you can have a great run and they have a relationship of continuity, but they are actually separate from each other. I think the kind of the bliss of like, finishing a day in the studio or like finishing a run is like a kind of exhaustion that clears out all the other stuff because you're so tired that really all you can do is like breathe and walk and you're grateful for those two things you're grateful to be walking and breathing and you're grateful for like the present moment like I I think that's something else is like there's very few things that we do nowadays with all of the distractions and all of the internet and this and that and this and that, where you're just completely focused on what you're doing. And I think exercise can be one of them. And I think painting or being in the studio can be another one of them.
1: I, I think also like something that Julia and I talk about a lot is how like neither one of us are really like product driven in our work. Um, and in like a very specific way of like I mean, like you said, both of us don't make things where everything is made the same way and everything looks, you know, consistently of the same materials. Or um, I I think there is a lot of emphasis, obviously, in what we see of, like, the art world and the art market of, like, making things that are consistent. Like, I, I always think about it being too much, like being a shoe designer or something it's like there's the spring one and there's fall and like you know if you make athletic stuff like you really shouldn't go into like evening like you should just stick to that like and I think with both of us like we're like what if it's not a shoe what if it's like you know a dog that'd be weird and I I think that's like that's another thing of kind of like this idea of becoming like not to become, but to always be like in this state of moving and doing and and learning through that. And and I also think a lot of the artists that we end up talking about are, are people who've changed a lot, who really have paid attention to what's going on in their personal lives and, and who they are as people and let that guide the work in different directions depending on what they're doing, as opposed to, um, you know, like pushing a, a single line, which I also, you know, I like some artists who do that, and I don't think that they think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that's definitely uh, become a kind of driving force mm-hmm. in school, you know, how people think about art making.
0: Thank you both so much. This was so fun. I hope. <laughs> I hope Thank you, Jacob. Yeah,
2: that's great. Yeah. You hear that? Stop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode of tintamar if you would like to support the podcast you can head on over to our patreon page at tintamar slash patreon.com to support Um, we also sell tote bags hand printed tote bags with the logo on them so if you're interested in one of those Send me a DM on Instagram, and I can mail you one. Uh, Also, shout out to Omi, who produced the music for this episode. Um, You can find her music on soundcloud.com slash only Omi. Thanks so much. Bye.